this is your New Mexico government. Thanks for joining us for another episode. I'm Kave Movahead. Our state is home to quite a few underserved and underrepresented communities, like our 23 indigenous tribes and our sizable immigrant communities. Their neighborhoods tend to not get the resources they need to keep up with infrastructure or even to fund the public services most of us take for granted. Perhaps the most basic need is the ability to communicate what our needs are. Today on YNMG, we'll talk about language access. New Mexico does an okay job with Spanish speakers, but that leaves out so many people who need help but can't overcome the communication barriers that keep aid from them. Our guest today is Yasmin Khan, a reporter from KUNM Radio, who has dedicated much of her life to helping shine light on underserved communities. Earlier this week, she hosted KUNM's Let's Talk New Mexico, where she talked to advocates for language accessibility and people who are suffering because of a lack of translation services. She also recently covered missing and murdered indigenous women and basic income support for immigrant families. We'll touch on all of these and some related bills moving around the legislature in today's conversation. We have a link to Yasmin's work on our webpage. Find YNMG at KUNM.org under the News tab and online at NewMexicoPBS.org. Here's my talk with Yasmin Khan. I'm Yasmin Khan. I'm a reporter with KUNM, and I report on social services, equality, access issues, refugees, things like that. Yasmin, this week you hosted Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM on the issue of language access and government for a range of services like legal and healthcare and other social services. Were you able to talk to any people on the ground who lost out on benefits or justice because they just couldn't communicate effectively? I guess there's a spectrum of people who can't access services. Since 2020, I've been reporting on Spanish language speakers who also sometimes struggle to access services. One woman who I talked to last year, she's from Iraq. She's not here on refugee status. She came here as a family member for a daughter who lives in California, but she speaks Arabic only. She's older. She's in her late 60s. And she was struggling to get Medicaid or Medicare for herself and her husband, who was a little bit older than her. And he had a heart condition. But before they could even figure out the application and get insurance, he died and she said now she's been left with at least $20,000 in medical bills piling up and she's struggling because her language skills also make it very difficult for her to work and he died before they could get the health insurance. So she's struggling now to apply for food stamps and other supports because those applications are solely in English. I also talked to a teacher who told me that she has two new students in her class from Afghanistan and that she was really surprised that the girls were put into her classroom and there was no interpretation help, that she asked the school, what language are they speaking? And nobody even knew what language the girls were speaking. And she wasn't sure how to get any access to translation services for them. So yeah, there's a few different people that I've talked to. That's really difficult when you don't have a translator on staff. I can translate Spanish, but I can't translate Arabic. Right. That is a challenge. And, you know, you just mentioned Arabic and I'm pretty sure Farsi in Afghanistan. And Pashto. Depending on maybe which part of the country you're from. Mm -hmm. Many English speakers might think Spanish translations where the biggest need would be, but you found that there's a lot more opportunity to help people with other languages. Which other people need translation services that just aren't available? 
Albuquerque in New Mexico has a long tradition on welcoming refugees. I remember meeting people who were here from Afghanistan on refugee status 20 years ago when I first moved here. But we do have the resources to support these families. There are advocacy groups, there are people in the community that want to support newcomers who come here, uh, whether on refugee status or as immigrants or migrants. But sometimes those services aren't offered in the right format. Part of the welcoming of people who are coming here on refugee status is to have adequate language services. And that's how you ensure that people here on refugee status have access to the services and protections that are their right under that status. So we do have newer Afghan populations just from the past few months who speak mostly Pashto and Farsi, but there's also a need for more Arabic translators and interpreter, Swahili, Vietnamese, and a range of other Asian and African languages. And we can't forget that these applications that are mostly in English and sometimes Spanish even leave out native populations, such as people who speak Diné and the range of indigenous languages that we have in our state. So it's not just about newcomers, but even First Nations people living here don't have access to the languages they need to apply to services and supports. And what organizations or types of services are most in need? Albuquerque Public Schools, for sure, as we have more children coming in from different regions of the world, they need some help with translation services, medical and legal systems. For example, families end up having to have children interpret for their families during serious issues of medical and legal problems, such as issues of domestic violence or when their parent or a loved one is in the hospital. And that's so stressful for children and it's illegal. They shouldn't have to show up and provide their own translator, especially if they're children. Law enforcement, there's been some movement forward in law enforcement having access to translators, but they have to actually use it when it is necessary. Applications on the computer, for example, for food stamps and Medicaid, it's the same agency, but those applications are mostly in English. And right now there is an ongoing lawsuit against the New Mexico Human Services Department that runs services of SNAP, Medicaid, LIHEAP, which helps with heating because their applications are not available in enough languages and those services are desperately needed and they have federal funding to stay afloat. All right, I'm thinking about the people from these communities that are often, you know, just underrepresented and underserved. And it makes me wonder who the advocates are for non-English speakers. Are there any powerful allies out there? Powerful allies who are sponsors of House Bill 22, which we'll talk about in a minute, is Patricia Royabal Caballero, Antoinette Cedillo Lopez, Kay Bunkua, Mimi Stewart. Those are people in our state government who have been pushing to support language access. But we also have New Mexico Asian Family Center, New Mexico Voices for Children, New Mexico Black Leadership Council, and United Voices for Newcomer Rights at the University of New Mexico. And those organizations, plus a lot of organizations that are working with Spanish-speaking communities, have been pushing for expanded language access for decades. So it's not new. You just mentioned there is some legislation that may help alleviate the issues at the state level. What can you tell us about House Bill 22? There is already federal legislation that says that any state agency in the country that gets federal funding has to provide a range of languages to allow people to access that federal funding, such as SNAP and Medicaid. 
but that isn't happening like with the case of the human services department here in new mexico so this state legislation house bill 22 is doubling down and reiterating this federal legislation and it's starting with helping agencies evaluate languages they need and by making it a state law they're hoping to reinforce the federal law to provide applications and services in multiple languages and this house bill is a first step as representative Bunkua said on let's talk new mexico because this starts by just helping agencies evaluate what languages are needed. But after that, they're going to need to train and hire translators and interpreters. And this could mean more jobs for people here on refugee status, indigenous people and immigrants who've been here a long time who have multiple language skills. And House Bill 22 has cleared the House. It's in the Senate now. And we have about a week left in the session. We don't have to keep this strictly to legislative topics. You've been covering underserved and immigrant communities for some time. And earlier this week, you wrote about a government program to help immigrant families with a guaranteed income. Who's involved with that? How does that work? So the guaranteed income program is funded by the Kellogg Foundation and Up Together, but it was designed by local immigrant advocacy groups. Basically, 30,000 New Mexico families were left out of COVID stimulus checks, left out of unemployment benefits, left out of all the supports that were very helpful to so many of us living in the state during the first year of COVID. And these families were left out mostly because one or more workers in that family had undocumented immigration status. And so in the state total, there's about 60,000 workers who are undocumented. And a lot of them are frontline workers essential workers, people who work to keep everything running throughout the pandemic, but were not eligible for any of the COVID relief that other people got. These people were not only left out of COVID support, but they're left out of regular support, such as food stamps and Medicaid, despite the fact that undocumented workers in the state pay almost $70 million in state and local taxes every year, but they're not represented as voters or recipients of aid that those taxes support. So this new project, the New Mexico Immigrant Guaranteed Basic Income Project, would give 330 undocumented or mixed immigration status families from around the state $500 a month for one year starting next month. But the families are chosen randomly, and there's definitely much more need beyond the 330 families that this project will support for a year. Then there's House Bill 213, a state child tax credit bill which helps alleviate the gap that was left by the federal child income tax credit ending at the end of last year. That federal tax credit gave families a few hundred dollars a month and it pulled tens of thousands of New Mexico's children out of poverty. But since it's ended, it's been a a dire situation for a lot of those families who were using that tax credit for things like food and housing. They were using it for basics. According to Amber Wallen, who's executive director of New Mexico Voices for Children, the new state level tax credit will reach every single child in the state and it will make our tax system more fair and racially equitable. And she said it puts money into the pockets of families who will spend it rapidly and locally. 
I just quickly looked it up while we were chatting. House Bill 213 is in a House committee right now, the Taxation and Revenue Committee, and it looks like it's scheduled to be heard today. So we'll keep an eye on that one in the coming days. And, you know, there's not a lot of time left, but sponsored by Javier Martinez. And I see the title is Public Peace, Health, Safety, and Welfare, which kind of leads me to believe that this is one of those dummy bills, one of those bills that are filed way ahead of time, but then basically left blank so that there's already something on the books and they can just kind of fill them out later in the session as you know, time allows, time in need. There's a lot of controversy over dummy bills. The New Mexico League of Women Voters, for instance, doesn't like the idea of, you know, they kind of see it as a, a loophole. We'll keep an eye on this one and see what happens. There's one more topic I'd like to touch on. It's tragic, but so important that we give it some oxygen. You've recently covered a demonstration on the Navajo Nation where people were pleading for help to find their missing relatives. Can you tell us what that was like? That was really sad. It was heartbreaking. If you've ever had to talk to a parent or a sibling of somebody who's not just somebody who is murdered, but people who are missing. These family members have missing and murdered loved ones who have been gone for months and sometimes years. It is a tragic issue. There are a lot of roots to why this is happening, but one of them is the overlapping jurisdiction between state law enforcement, federal law enforcement, city law enforcement, Navajo Nation, and other tribal law enforcement And that overlap doesn't mean that there's more than one agency working on stuff. It means that people are falling through the cracks. Families are not getting the information they need. They're not getting follow-up on their cases. They will go through multiple different investigators. Law enforcement agencies working on these cases are overworked and under-resourced. This is not a new phenomenon of missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives. It doesn't only happen in rural areas. New Mexico has the worst rate of missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives in the entire nation. And Bernalillo County is the second worst county in the whole country. Just here in Albuquerque, we have 37 cases of missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives. I was talking to a lawyer, Darlene Gomez, who works with a lot of these cases. She said that because there's only one jurisdiction here, city police, those cases sometimes have a slightly better outcome of being resolved. But we still have way too many cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and relatives here. It was an event where people walked in five miles from each direction. Each direction in Native tradition has its own fruit or vegetables, water, meat, and people came together with a fire in Nishoni Park and spoke about their experience and shared with me some really, really hard stories. I'm not living through this experience, but just those five days of working on the story was, you know, I cried during every interview, as I was doing the interviews, I cried while I was listening to tape. And I can't imagine ever having to live through that nightmare day in and day out that these families are living through. Well, yeah, thank you. It was hard to listen to on the radio. I know those stories are up on KUNM.org for any listeners who want to go find them. And we'll get a link up to your work. There is some related legislation moving around the roundhouse in Santa Fe right now that might help in the efforts to locate missing people. Can you update us on some of those? Yeah, there's Senate Bill 13, which is the missing in New Mexico event that passed the Senate more than a week ago. 
and it's now in the calendar for the House of Representatives. This event would make one day a year a remembrance for missing and murdered Indigenous women and relatives. It would also allow families to meet with investigators to find updates on their cases and hopefully shed more light on this epidemic that's been growing throughout our state and our region for decades. However, you know, there's mixed feelings about this legislation. Some people are happy to have any kind of legislation that talks about this crisis, but other people say a day of remembrance is you know, a step in the right direction, but so much more is needed. And that's why Senate Bill 12 is important because Senate Bill 12 makes a position within the Attorney General's office specifically to investigate missing and murdered Indigenous women and relatives cases. So that means that the Attorney General will have a widespread jurisdiction and it will address all of these gaps in jurisdiction that are really hurting these families who are actually spending most of their time and energy looking for their missing family members on their own. The Attorney General, if this bill passes, will be able to make an overarching specialist position that can reach into all different corners of the state and try to heal some of those gaps. And then I saw Senate Memorial 18. It's a Senate memorial, not a bill. It's not a law. It doesn't have any power of law. There's nothing binding there. That passed the Senate, by the way. And it's just kind of a statement on behalf of the Senate that makes a general official recognition that there's a problem here and the state is dedicated to trying to help. I know it's maybe just words, but at least it helps start that conversation among legislators that has the issue in front of their eyes. Yes. If it starts the conversation for people, legislators or public who just haven't been aware of this crisis, then that's all good. Yasmin Khan, reporter for KUNM Radio. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was really nice chatting with you and we appreciate you and all the work you do for underrepresented communities in our state. Thank you, Kaveh. That was KUNM reporter Yasmin Khan. If you didn't catch her hosting Let's Talk New Mexico this week on language access and public services, you can find a link to the show and the rest of her work on the YNMG page under the News tab at KUNM.org and also online with our media partner at NewMexicoPBS.org. KUNM and New Mexico PBS would like to thank the Thornburg Foundation for generously supporting the Your New Mexico Government Project. Find more from us by following the hashtag YNMG on social media, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify so you don't miss an episode. This time next week, we'll be wrapping up the legislative session, but we still have a bunch of great listening coming your way, so stay with us. And if you have questions for us or our guests, or you want to point us towards something you think is important, email us at ynmg at kunm.org. I'm Kaveh Movahead, and this is your New Mexico government. We'll see you again in just a few days.